Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back the ten steps it has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and he has cut me off from the loom. Day and night, you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion, he broke all of my bones. Day and night, you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a mourning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you as I am doing today. Parents tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. Isaiah had said, Prepare a poultice of figs and apply it to the boil, and he will recover. Hezekiah had asked, What will be the sign that I will go up to the temple of the Lord? At that time, Marduk-Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift, because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. 
Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say, and where were they from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word you have of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Well, thanks, Philip, and good morning again, everyone. It's great to have you with us, particularly if it's your first time. We are in the final week of our nine-week series in the book of Isaiah, just looking at the first half. And as we kicked off the series nine weeks ago, I put before you several outcomes that I thought would come to those who invested the time in getting to know God better through the book of Isaiah. And the first of my list was that it would grow our trust that God keeps every one of his promises. And the last on the list was that getting to know God better through Isaiah would really shape the way that we live today as a church, in our households, as people who follow Jesus. I hope the sermons have done that in part. Uh, You'll have found that more so if you've been part of a community group as we've had a special focus on the application of what we've been learning from Isaiah. And I trust that those of you who use the daily reading notes added another layer of depth to that as well. Today's passage, I think, really helps us draw together those threads from the series, particularly the link between deeply trusting in God each day and how that shapes us as we choose how to live in God's world. If you've looked at the sermon outline, you'll see that this is a sermon all about trust. I think that's, you know, the predominant theme of this first half of Isaiah So as we get into it, let me be clear up front that the cornerstone of the Christian life is trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you're here today checking out who Jesus is, we plant churches like this one because we believe this is extraordinarily good news for every person on the planet. And in addition to joining us on a Sunday... There's other ways that we'd love to be of service to you in exploring who Jesus is. So if you're checking out Jesus for the first time or Church in Jesus for the first time in a while, just grab the response tear-off bit in your leaflet and tick the I'd like to find out more about Jesus box and tear it off and pop it in the tin up the back and we'll be in touch. And we consider it a great privilege to see how we can be of help to you as you explore this great cornerstone of the Christian life Jesus' death on the cross for us, then rising to new life as a great king to live for. And as we trust in Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, to 
clear our rap sheet, if you like, so to, um, of the many ways in which we dishonour God uh, by not living with him at the centre of our lives. As we trust in Jesus to fix that, one of the great outcomes is that our relationship with God is restored and we can have a daily living bond with a holy God who loves us. We can pray to him. We can see him at work in our lives. We can experience much of his love and care for us through our brothers and sisters in Christ in a local church family like ours. And as our relationship with God develops day by day from when we first trust in Jesus for our salvation, I think over time the goal is always to grow in trust more deeply with God day by day. And I want to put it before all of you that there is a great blessing in developing this daily lifestyle of trusting God and much to be lost if we don't. I would go as far as to say that there's a particular problem in the Western church today that none of us are immune to, that many people plateau in their discipleship and are stuck in this kind of half-hearted, lukewarm expression of the Christian life. Well, we can be quite clear that we're trusting in Jesus for our salvation, that our you know, afterlife insurance policy is all sorted. Yet, we want to hedge our bets a little by making sure we also wring as much out of this life as we can for our enjoyment and satisfaction. Kind of just in case we were wrong about Jesus. And by hedging our bets in that way, I think that inner desire to live for ourselves today and for God's kingdom creates quite an inner conflict where counting the cost of following Jesus can feel like an anchor that's holding us back from our own aspirations today. So my goal this day is to help show you what a precious remedy it is to develop a daily lifestyle of trusting God that by his power helps reduce this inner conflict as we pursue Christian growth, fruitfulness, joy, resilience and passion for God's kingdom. So let's get to it. The Bible reading and outline are there in your leaflets. And if you were with us last week, in many ways uh, the passage where we left off would have been a fitting end to this first half of the book of Isaiah. In contrast to the previous King Ahaz's lack of trusting God, we've just seen King Hezekiah trusts God when it really matters and the looming threat of the all-conquering Assyria of the day has come right up to the gates of Jerusalem and as Luke brought out so brilliantly last week, you know, you just kind of imagine being there, standing on the wall, some low-ranking soldier as the commander of the Assyrian army with a pretty good track record, you must say, to back him up engaged in some pretty compelling psychological warfare, mocking Hezekiah's trust in God to deliver them. I could imagine standing on the wall, hearing that, knowing the resume, with my heart quavering. Yet Hezekiah held fast to God's promise of deliverance 
and God himself delivered with an angel of the Lord passing through as they slept, killing 185,000 of the Assyrian army. So they withdrew. A fitting kind of climactic end to Assyria, uh, don't you think? Yet like the conclusion of, you know, season one of a gritty Netflix drama, a new problem is introduced right at the end, giving us new questions to ponder as we await the release of season two. And unlike Netflix, who cancel all the best shows after season one, I will be back next year with the second half of Isaiah here and hopefully, God willing, at the church that we seek to plant in the Tonsley area later this year. But in the last 10 minutes of season one, we're given some key insights into one of the main characters towards the end, Hezekiah, and a new much bigger threat that is rising in Babylon. We read in chapter 38 that in those days, Hezekiah falls ill. Isaiah, God's mouthpiece, speaking on God's behalf as a prophet, tells him to put his house in order. He's going to die. He's not going to recover. Hezekiah turns to the wall and crumples, praying to God, verse 3, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. What are we kind of, when I read things like that, I think, what are we supposed to make of Hezekiah at this point? Was he really that good? Well, the book of Two Kings, which gives us further account of Hezekiah's reign, marked his report card pretty well, saying this in 2 Kings 18, verses 5 to 7. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Yet Hezekiah certainly wasn't perfect. In that very same chapter I just read from, it goes on to say uh, part of the story of Hezekiah that's not included in Isaiah, that when Assyria had taken the northern kingdom and had started to press into Hezekiah's territory in the, the northern fortified cities of Judah, Hezekiah actually sought to pay the king of Syria off by taking the extensive silverware from God's temple and the royal treasuries and giving it to Assyria as payment in hope that the Assyrian armies would withdraw. And a bit like trying to pay off the school bully, it didn't work. (laughs) Not a great look for Hezekiah, nor was it a great model of godly trust. Indeed, further in today's passage, Hezekiah acknowledges his sinfulness before God and God's kindness in dealing with it. So, a commendable king yet sinful and imperfect, who made some not great choices at points, cries out to God, not quite getting the content right, yet the direction of the prayer to God and the trust that it displayed are entirely heartfelt and commendable. Hezekiah 
knew enough of God's character to run to him like a child to a loving father. And the heart of God the Father was moved. Fifteen years were added to his life and a miraculous sign given as a token of the faithfulness of God's promise so that Hezekiah could be encouraged and hold on so that he would not fear imminent death. So let's just process what's going on here. God has declared something. Usually we take that to the bank. He's declared Hezekiah's death. Hezekiah pours his heart out to God in response, making a claim of a life of wholehearted devotion that's a bit of a stretch, and then wept bitterly, and God changed his mind. Adding 15 years to his life with an extraordinary miracle, quite literally turning the earth on its axis for 10 more, days of, 10 more hours of sunlight that day, to encourage Hezekiah. Quite a mind-blowing thing for us to comprehend, I suspect. But it's also a beautiful image of God's fatherly love for one of his children. Many in our world who have trusted Jesus or not have an image of God being a stern, distant, fatherly figure with a big cane ready to give you a whack at the first sign of any indiscretion. But that is not the God Hezekiah knows. It is not the God Isaiah lays before us. And if you're here thinking through who Jesus is, this is that's not the image of God the, that you're being invited to come into relationship with. I think it's best to understand in the context of that kind of father-child relationship. I think it helps us kind of get what's going on here, a bit like uh, Will and Leah stood up at nine and declared their intention to raise little Lottie to know and love and serve Jesus. Or a bit if you like, if you think about my relationship with my youngest daughter, Poppy, who's six. I love her to bits, uh, but like all kids, sometimes she misbehaves, sometimes she's hard work, sometimes she doesn't listen. She's a kid, she's learning how life works. Yet at the moment, she's into making cards. So sometimes you'll go to bed at night and there'll be a card sitting on your pillow <clears throat> with lots of effort put into it in a six-year-old drawing kind of way. And she's quite expressive. She'll write things like, my love is new for you each day. <laughs> She'll spell new, N-Y-O-O. <laughs> it's not perfect in its execution, nor are all the claims uh, entirely able to be backed up. But the deep heart behind it, the genuineness of the affection, is a beautiful thing that moves a father's heart. Hezekiah knows God well enough to know that that fatherly love is available to him and that he can run to God like a little child to a loving father in deep distress and pour out exactly how he feels. And we see here in this story, God the Father, the creator of all the universe's heart, is moved and he changed his mind. One of the guys I've read a lot on Isaiah put it this way. I'll just pop it up on screen. Uh, thanks, Hannah. Quote. It says, God is always ready to be entreated. 
He is unchanging in his intention to bless his creatures and is willing to change his word if people turn to him in intensity of faith. That does not mean that matters will always turn out as we wish, but it does mean that prayer can change the course of events and that failure to pray is not necessarily a sign of submission to God's intractable will. Rather, it may be a sign of apathy and unwillingness to wrestle with God. Now, I think that's quite a challenge to us in the way that we think. I'm still wrestling with aspects of that quote, but I think it's good to be challenged because I think that's what the story of Hezekiah does as we come to this kind of halfway point in Hezekiah where the whole kind of running question through the first half of the book is, will my people trust me? If you've been with us for a while here, you may have heard me preach on Psalm 77 a few times, one of my favourite psalms, and it's a wonderful expression of how someone in deep pain pours out their heart to God. And the punchline to the sermon is, when did we fall for the idea that God prefers to hear our polite, theologically correct, formulaic prayers rather than us running to him like a child to a loving father, expressing how we really feel? Psalm 77 is a good expression of that. But Hezekiah's writings, as he looks back on his illness and recovery in verses 10 to 20... I think a very psalm-like, and in my opinion, are worthy of a place among the very best psalms in the Bible. Let's just have a look at it briefly. Hezekiah first laments verses 10 to 14, reflecting his deep anguish that he feels like his life is being kind of robbed from him in his prime. It's being taken away. And we'll pick it up from verse 13 uh, there in uh, your Bible handout. Where Hezekiah says, I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion, he broke all my bones. Day and night, you made an end of me. He's saying this to God. I cried like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a morning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened, Lord. Come to my aid. And in verse 15 to 17, Hezekiah reflects the wisdom of someone who knows God loves him, who trusts God, even in the depths of despair. Trusting God to know enough that suffering can be a great teacher and that God can impart many precious things to us during trial. Verse 17, he says, Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. And in your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all of my sins behind your back. Then in verses 18 to 20, Hezekiah reasons that he wants to live to continue the praise of God. He expresses trust in God's salvation and that as a result is this great promise to live for God's praise and glory. I think it's good to acknowledge sometimes that all of our Old Testament characters don't fully appreciate uh, some of the things that we who look back on the cross seem quite clear to us. I think this is a good example when it comes to the resurrection. Uh, Because Isaiah himself has been saying some very clear things about life after death and the resurrection. It's not like God's changed his plan. 
But I think this um, psalm, you know, potentially points to the fact that Hezekiah didn't fully appreciate what's made very clear to us post-Jesus' life, death and resurrection, that we'll be praising God for all eternity and the grave won't stop that. Yet Hezekiah totally got what one of the key themes of the Christian life is, written large across the New Testament, that once someone is saved by God, our response is always to kind of take our focus off ourselves and to live for the praise and glory and honour of our Saviour each and every day of our lives. Telling the next generation of God's faithfulness like Will and Leah promised to do with Charlotte this morning at her dedication. And we as a church promised to help them do that. And for all the precious little ones, God has entrusted to our church family. For Hezekiah, the story concludes with recovery from his illness and restored access to God's temple and his worship there. Yet this is not quite the end of Hezekiah's story. In the closing minutes of season one, this great drama, we get a flashback. Actually, all of chapter 38, I think, is a flashback because it's talking about God saving um, uh, the king uh, from Assyria, kind of future tense. So I think we've, we've shifted back to give us more insight into something that may have happened sometime before. And I think verse uh, 39 makes that clear as well uh, because as Isaiah... Uh, welcomes these envoys from Babylon and shows them the riches uh, of the temple and of the kingdom, we know that later on that they are paid off uh, to Assyria, as I mentioned before, and we read that from two kings. But like much of our skillful storytelling of today, we kind of get this whole flashback revealing behind the scenes something that's been happening as we've been focusing on the main storyline of season one. Hezekiah has done something foolish and there's a sense of doom rising about this new threat of Babylon who at the time were allies. And I think as Isaiah's first readers would have heard this, they would have taken away from it that Hezekiah is just a man, a good king, a commendable king, but not the promised Messiah that Isaiah has been preaching about that would bring everlasting peace. And also to kind of show us the key flaw in God's people, uh, then I would argue, and now, that Hezekiah illustrates so well that backs against the wall with no one to turn to, we find it somewhat more easy to kind of to trust in God, to call out in these desperate prayers. And God in his kindness uh, does uh, often do great things in response to those prayers. And he certainly did for Hezekiah, with miracles and interventions outside of our normal experience. In this instance, with, you know, angel of the Lord destroying an army. Yet in more peaceful times of prosperity, even a good king like Hezekiah could think, here's a new problem, I've got this, without seeking God's wisdom. Isaiah was not consulted, like, Hezekiah had a prophet, he could just ask stuff in a way that we didn't. Isaiah was not consulted, God's will was not sought about what to do with these envoys from Babylon. So Isaiah lays out for Hezekiah that Babylon will come again, not in peace, 
and take the people into exile, his own children will be taken away. So much to come in season two. As we hear more about this Messiah King who will come, as Isaiah prophesied, as clear as day, some 700 years in advance, about King Jesus, who we can trust entirely. But as we close Isaiah for now, as we always want to do, we want to ask the question, what are we to take from Hezekiah's story as presented for us today? From the story of God's people in Isaiah's day? I've um, found in recent weeks that Isaiah has touched a nerve as I've either prepared some sermons or heard Luke or Cam or Jamie preach in recent weeks. And it actually has been causing me to reflect back on my life as a Christian, some of the things God has taught me and my propensity to forget them. For me, when at the lowest point of my life, which was about 10 years ago, it was my First year in ministry, only a few months out of Bible college, and I was dealing with the sudden and traumatic death of someone very close to me. I hit rock bottom about three months into that. Some of our regulars here will know the story, but it was the point I hit rock bottom was on a Sunday between preaching at the 8.30 and the 10.30 services at Trinity Church Adelaide, and someone found me in the back room, curled up in the ball on the floor, in tears, totally broken. Yet after some prayer from a colleague, we decided I would attempt to preach again at 10.30. And for someone who, up until that point, trying not to be too easy or too harsh on myself, um, let's describe it as living fairly self-assured, it was quite something to be reduced to a point where you knew you had absolutely nothing to give. And that if anything good was to come, God would have to do it. (laughs) And in a great display of God's power, I got through that sermon. (laughs) It was a very hard lesson from a loving God that as a pastor, I always needed to rely on God's strength and that I could trust him. So when I forget that, and many of the other hard lessons I've learnt in life, I'm a pretty slow study, I learn to learn most things the hard way. But when I catch myself, particularly trying to do important things in my own strength, without prayer, thinking, I've got this, I need to be a man of action here and make things happen. Luke had that line in his sermon uh, last week and it really cut me to the heart, <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> when I catch myself like that, I really kick myself And I try to remember the lessons that God taught me at such a great cost. Yet in God's kindness over the last six months, I think it's been an immense work of God in my life that I've recaptured some of the kind of simplicity of uh, the faith I had in my first days as a Christian when I gave my life to Jesus as a 21-year-old where I'd quite regularly and multiple times a day kind of run to God in prayer, trusting that I had a loving Father who would listen to me, just like Hezekiah did. 
And in things that won't change world events nor uh, worthy inclusions in a story like Hezekiah's but have been incredibly important and encouraging to me personally, I'd say this year I've seen some astounding answers to trusting and heartfelt prayers which I've found really encouraging as a sign of God's great love for me that I think I'll be able to hold on to for the rest of my days as tokens of God's trustworthiness. And I think if you asked my wife Grace or the staff team, it's been changing me. Uh, they're all here in the room and you know, Dad, who is also here, said to me out of the blue the other week, I've never seen you look so relaxed as you do today. And in God's kindness, I feel like whatever the future holds... God is doing a number on me to teach me once again to keep trusting him daily, to develop this lifestyle of trust. Again, let me be clear, the Christian life beginning again, beginning and end and every day in between is sustained by trusting in Jesus for our salvation and life's purpose becomes living for the praise of God's glory. And we can trust him in much smaller matters too. We have a heavenly father who loves us to run to him in prayer. And like many of you, I've had a bit going on in recent months. So this newfound sort of sense of peace and relaxation is not just because circumstances have changed for the better. Some of it's been quite vexing for me. And I know from many years of experience that it's very easy to get into a rut of not entrusting yourself to God in prayer daily or doing what I do when I'm often overwhelmed. I list off my complaints to God in prayer, then go about life as if I have to do it all in my own strength. As if the God of the universe wasn't taking a deep interest in my life and that his power was not available to me as well. If any of this is ringing true for you, And I know what's going on in many of your households and there's probably plenty I know that isn't. Do try to quite simply start the day as a follower of Jesus, giving thanks for your salvation. Pour out your troubles and concerns to your Heavenly Father who loves you about what troubles you. Your hopes, your good desires for family. Confess your own sin openly. God already knows And ask for God's help this day and then do that every day. Asking for a God-given trust that endures even when you don't get what you ask for. A trust that can endure even through the epic fails. A trust that endures through defeat. Trusting that God will teach us many good things in such ways. And giving thanks to God, praising God as that trust is built. Rejoicing in your heart and, you know, the number of times I've been driving along in the car and just singing some of my favourite Christian songs to uh, as loudly as I can in a way that would be unkind to you here at church. I've just really wanted to keep pouring out praise to God for in... You know, it just seems like a kindness season period of life on seeing 
things go much better than what I prayed or asked for. We're seeing many clear answers to prayer, which are a real joy and is not always the Christian experience. Keep asking for God to grow that trust in you daily, that lifestyle and trust. It is life-changing. And corporately as a church, we can be a huge blessing to each other by people who are developing and cultivating this lifestyle of trust. And as we think corporately about our hopes and dreams in a bold year of plans and church planting, let's continue to entrust them to God, trusting that whatever happens, God will be with us and will keep teaching us. And that whatever happens, Jesus will build his church, whether things for us turn out far better than we can dare imagine or whether they appear to be an epic fail. With that in mind, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we express our trust in you. Please develop in us that daily lifestyle of entrusting all things to you in prayer, thanking you for the salvation you have brought us in your Son, Jesus. As we pray boldly, please guard us from the folly of presuming that our plans are your plans. Yet at the same time, help us to wrestle with you in prayer, expressing trust in your great power and praying boldly that we as a church family might bring great glory and honour to your name. We thank you for Will and Leah Cowell as they brought little Charlotte today for dedication at our 9am service as they long to teach her of your faithfulness. We ask that Charlotte may live each day of her life confident in your love for her, confident of your power and care for her, particularly in the hard seasons of life, but also in the great times. We ask today especially for your love and care for the Livingston family and their friends and us as a church family as we grieve together tomorrow at her funeral. We thank you that Naomi died after a life of walking with you in a lifestyle of trust and that she knew her saviour Jesus. May that be the same conclusion to all of our lives here on this earth. And we thank you that in your great plan of salvation in this world, we have been reconciled to you by our King Jesus and that we can look forward to an eternity of praising you, enjoying you and your new creation forevermore. Please help us to live each day for your glory, trusting you from this day to that great day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.